Mi familia is beautiful, big, and completely blended. To give y'all some perspective, my mom has seven kids, three different biological dads. My older brother, Jose Lucio, is 42, and I'm the youngest, and I'm 24. Jose Lucio didn't really grow up with us. He stayed in Honduras with his biological father. And on my dad's side, he has another son in Honduras, too. The siblings that follow Jose Lucio are Velma, Kevin, Enzo, Elizabeth, and Patrick. And they all have the same biological father. When my mom traveled from San Pedro Sula, Honduras to San Diego, California, she brought my four siblings and was pregnant with Patrick. Then she met my dad in San Diego and voila, I popped in. In this episode, I talk with my brothers, Kevin, Enzo, and Patrick, my rocks, my best friends. Kevin was always like a dad to me. He spoiled me with all his love, attention, fun experiences. Sometimes he dropped me off at school, but I would hella cry and ask him if I can skip it. And he'd always cave and he would end up swinging by his girlfriend's place and hanging out at the park. I eventually told my parents this story last year and they could not stop laughing. <laughs> but that's Kevin for you. Me consentía un montón. He may look like a big, scary, tall military dude on the outside, but he's the biggest softie on the inside. And he'd do anything to protect and love his people. I spent so much of my childhood admiring Enzo for his artistic abilities and his confidence. Although he taught me how young men operate and how to avoid those fools, he actually taught me how to have really thick skin. He'd do things like, <laughs> he'd throw me in the pool so I'd learn how to swim, or he'd tackle me to the ground when playing soccer, like he did not take it easy on me. But my favorite memories with him was watching him build architecture models or sketch out graffiti, or when he'd use his airbrush on a white canvas to create something beautiful. Sometimes he'd even let me use the leftover materials to create something of my own. And I was never that good. <laughs> I was actually not good at all, but he pushed me to keep trying anyway. Patrick, on the other hand, annoys the hell out of me, but he's like my best friend. We're the closest in age and we went to San Jose State and I literally followed in all his footsteps. He was all about the tough love. Like with college, for example, he never really gave me advice on what to do. He just told me it was worth experiencing all of it on my own. It'd make me a better person, he'd say. He taught me the value of independence and growth and living and creating the life I want. I still look up to him so much and admire all his intelligence. I am who I am because of my brothers. So to sit down with them as an adult myself and all of them as now fathers and talking about our childhoods and upbringing, it was really, really therapeutic. Because I was always La Niña, the youngest one in the room, I never got to have these real conversations with them. So being able to do that now and sharing it with all of you, it's really cool. Welcome to Hello Latino. First question we're going to start with is, this is interesting because I don't know how y'all are going to answer, but basically, how do you 
each identify? It's a very interesting question. So go, Patrick, you start. I would say I identify myself as Latino, not Hispanic, not Latinx. Uh, The reason being is Hispanic means you're of Spain. You're from Spain. I am not from Spain. My family's from Latin America, Central America, Honduras. So I say Latino because that is encompassing of all Latin America. While we do have traces and roots to Spain, I, I personally do not. My ancestry does because of the conquistadores and everything. We all know the history, so not, I won't get into it. But I do want to emphasize I don't identify as Latinx because to me that is an anglicized way of appropriating the Latino culture. And while some find value and comfort in it, I personally do not because that excludes anybody who doesn't speak English. That excludes anybody who really doesn't identify with American social norms. And that is not where my family is from. That is not the way I identify. I identify with the Latino culture and not Honduran American, not Latino American, but Latino. Mm. Kevin, go next. Well, <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> too much. No, um, I identify as Honduran American. Sorry. But I was actually born in Honduras. Um by the age of eight, we moved to California. And once I got in the army, I pretty much became an American citizen. So I, and since I do, I have been fighting for this country, I've been putting blood, sweat, and tears for the country. I did consider myself an American. So, but in a broader aspect, yes, I do consider myself a Latino for the same reasons that Patrick just mentioned as well. Like, I'm not Latinx, I'm not Hispanic because Hispanic, like Patrick said, come from Spain. Mm-hmm. But I'm more of a Latino, not a broader aspect, but more on narrative of Honduran American. Mm. Enzo. I'm A and B, not blind. <laughs> I feel I feel the same way as both Patrick and Kevin. No, I did not serve in the military, but I got my citizenship the right way. Uh, we came in here legally, so that's that's the reason why I consider myself Honduran American. But I am Latino in general. I am Latino in general because <laughs> of what uh, the information Patrick and both Kevin said. Like we're all we represent Latinos, all Latinos in all around Latin America. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's funny because I I didn't I've never asked each of you. The the reason oh, why I don't say Honduran Americans because I believe we're all here already. Everyone in this country is already American in one way or another. If they may be undocumented, but they're Americans. They're living in the United States of America. So, but I agree though. We are, I would say, hundred American, but on a more broader sense and to our roots, I would say Latino. Yep. But I agree with you, Kevin. All right. So don't get mad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump into. It's crazy because we there's seven of us total. Technically eight with with Bobby's son, but seven of us total. <laughs> And I know you guys also have siblings from your dad's side, but seven of us who grew up together, six of us actually grew up together more so. Um, But we've all had very different upbringings, especially because Enzo and Kevin, you guys were born in Honduras and Patrick and I were born in, in San Diego. So I want to take a moment to Enzo and Kevin for you guys to kind of talk about your experience, your upbringing in Honduras from what you remember, and then your experience coming to the U.S. So Enzo, do you want to go first? I was going to let Kevin this time since I, 
I just no, no. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, well, like I was like me and Ken would grow up. Well, it was from Guti and up. So from Velma, Kevin, and myself and Guti, we all grew up traveling <laughs> all around Central America. We uh, visited mostly Central America. We went to all, all the tourist areas around La Ceiba, all the beaches and everything. So we grew up a little bit above middle class, all because of mom's connections. Mom worked with very important people, and she did it all on her own. So we didn't grow up with financial struggles at all. We had, for reals, we had two maids. We have, they made us food whenever we want. We went to private school. Uh, so we basically had a, a little maid over there in Honduras. All right, Kevin, you finish. <laughs> no, I completely agree. Uh, like, I, like, we did actually have two houses. Everything was a lot simpler over there due to the fact that we did have the financial support. Um, shoot, we had two houses. We had pretty much like family gatherings. We had cars. We pretty much had the works. And we went to a pretty good school. As far as I can remember, it was a pretty good school. And we participated a lot in parades. We participated. Oh, we always, um, Mama always had visits from like the military generals for Honduras. So yeah, we actually had a pretty good upbringing in Honduras. Go ahead, Enzo. <laughs> well, then what do you guys remember from, from Honduras and then coming to the U.S.? Like, how was that whole experience? Well, I remember within the... I don't even think it was a week. I think it was like three days. And within three days, mom said, pack whatever you want. Not everything. Pack whatever you want and what you can. Like one luggage for four of us. That's, you had to pack whatever fits in that one luggage. And I remember mom said, in three days, we're leaving to the United States. And I remember like, I didn't want, I didn't want to leave because we were having, we had so many, we had everything, basically. Like I told you, like, I didn't want to leave, but I know mom's decision, mom's decision. So we packed as little as we can because they all had to fit in one luggage. And I remember, like, when that day came, I didn't sleep at all. I was, like, very awake. <laughs> I was very awake to see where we're going, who's going to take us and stuff like that. And I remember just going on a bus, and a whole bunch of people went into that bus. And our bus is not a small bus. It was like, I think it's a little bigger than the Greyhound that we have here in, in the States. So <laughs> I remember being on that. But we had to leave, like in the madrugada, we had to leave very, very early in the morning. Dang. Did you have any explanation? No, huh? It was just kind of like, pack your stuff. We're going. I don't know for, for myself and for Roma, we were already older. We were like, I was eight, Roma was nine. So I kind of forgot Roma's age. But Roma was nine. Um, but from what we remember, because Roma and, usually, uh, Roma and I talk about it a few times here and there, but from what we remember that, unfortunately, mom was in a very abusive relationship with our biological dad. So we remember visits that mom, we had for mom at the hospital due to that, that, that effect. And mom could get in a lot of threats 
because in Honduras, like Honduras, although we were stabilized, but Honduras is still pretty much a third world country to the aspect to where anything goes, money rules. Yep. And unfortunately, our biological dad was one to be abusive. So mom's reasoning from my point of view and Velma's point of view, because we saw all of this, was that she needed to get out of there before she ends up being not mom anymore. Mm-hmm. So mom took the word of our tias that lived here in the U.S., um, coming to the U.S., having a better life, that they would help her out in every aspect, in every way. <laughs> and unfortunately, that didn't work that way, but it did help out in the fact that it convinced mom to move to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember the vi- the violence experience that we saw our biological dad threaten mom, push mom. Um, but I don't want to go into details, but he... Um, he had a pistol and shot mom in the foot. I remember that. And I remember how he was very abusive. He wasn't like a very loving dude. He was very abusive to the point that I remember Kevin telling me one time, if he comes, uh, he hits me, you just hit him with something. Or go under the crib, hide under the crib. Or take Kuti out of the crib and go under the crib with her. I remember all the, that thing. Um, I don't know. We're gonna go into that detail, but yeah, might as well. No, no, that, no. Ma- that novella is open, no. so might as well. The novella is well, open. Well, well, I'm only, I'm only to, I just want to give concept as to why mom moved out here, not just for the lonely yeah. fact because she wanted to come to the U.S. because she did believe that it was a better life here, but she also was running away from something. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that is what I feel like triggered her the most. You know what? Instead of being here and suffering this. Why not move to somewhere where she's being told that it's a better place, it's a better area for her. For her, it's a better place to raise her kids. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it puts more context to it because if you have everything in Honduras, why would you leave, right? Yeah, yeah. like as I said, like every time I knew Dad was gonna be violent with us, I always made sure that Enzo and Kuti and even Belma we're not there or we're at least somewhere away to be able to not experience this kind of stuff. I honestly, even to this point, I'd rather take every single beating possible than to let anybody affect my family. So, and that's always been my thing. Uh, even when growing up, um, being pretty much the head of the house for a while, because when we moved here, like mom had nobody else but us. So I fell upon myself and Velma to be able to pretty much help put the family together. And that's why I get, I get very protective because I'm like, you know what? You guys are my family. My family here is my family. Your families are my family. So I will do everything I can to be able to protect. That's why I have no, what do you call it? I have no fear, no like sense of I'm holding back when it comes to protecting what I believe, like mm-hmm. what, who I love pretty much. Yeah. And you've always had that father yeah, figure. And, and, like you've and, always kind of been a father figure, at least in my head too, growing up. <laughs> and just like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. I want to ask one question though, before I go to Patrick, but for you guys, like seeing that violence growing up, like, did you, like, how did you feel about that? Like when you were like 
trying to move to the U.S. Like, were you just understanding like, okay, I get it. Like all this is happening in the house. We're just going to go. Or like, just, I think that's just a lot to process when you're a child and seeing that violence go down, especially with like your parents. So I'm just like curious what your thought process was in those moments of just like, dang, like this is, this is real. I have to hide under the crib or I have to tell my siblings to do X, Y, Z. Honest truth. Um, at the age of five coming here, I built hate. I hated that dude so bad. Like every time they say his name, it was just like, give me anger instead of anything else. So at the age of five mm-hmm. to build hate, that's crazy. Because I see my five-year-old, I'm like, this is lovey-dovey. He doesn't even hate nobody. Mm-hmm. But I remember like me seeing a whole bunch of stuff being from the age of, from what I remember, age of two and up. I'm like, dang. But I did. I had a lot of hate towards that dude. A lot. Just having to grow up that fast, huh? Yeah. So I want to jump to Patrick because I'm listening to all this and we never really talked about like our upbringings and, you know, especially Enzo, Kevin, Belma, Guti, like their upbringing in Honduras. So for you listening to all this, how does it make you feel? So for one, it does. uh, So two two main points. It, It angers me a little bit at the fact that Mom was forced, in a sense, to trade her riches for rags here in the U.S. She she literally gave up her her well-known standing in a country where she built a very good life for her children to move to a brand new country where she knows nothing of it. She doesn't speak the language as well as uh, people born here, but only for her children to have a great life or her children to have a better life, be able to build that American dream. Mm-hmm. So she literally traded it all away for a country where, and, and I know we were not going to get political, but in a country where we're not accepted, there is controversy about whether or not to accept this population, even though we were, mm-hmm. or even though um, mom and the, and the rest of them came legally, it's, it's still not accepted here. So that part angers me. And, Honestly, growing up, um, so since we're yeah. since we're being candid with our cafecito, um, my dad, the way I identify my dad is actually my stepdad. <laughs> it's Jasmine's dad, but he's my dad because at the age of one, that's all I knew. From the mm-hmm. age of one till about six or seven, he was the only person I knew of. He's my dad too. Yep. Well, yes, he's all of our yeah, dads. Everybody does. But so I'm saying, to me, that was that was the only concept of dad I had. I didn't know I had another one. But yeah, so just just mm-hmm. seeing how there was that comfortable life, that fun life. I mean, we couldn't even afford to go to the movie theaters here in the U.S. It, but in Honduras, they were traveling. They were going to tourist hotspots. They were going to all these different areas. But the <laughs> sense of family nucleus wasn't there. Versus here in the U.S., I did not have those tourist hotspot experiences, but I had a I had a strong sense of family nucleus from from what I remember to about age of six or seven when I found out that he wasn't. Um, so it, it's just very different. I mean, I wouldn't trade it away. I wouldn't want to grow up in Honduras um, with being able to go anywhere I want, get anything I want, and not have that strong parental relationship as an example because that is what I had growing up mm-hmm. yeah I mean our childhoods were very different and I want to talk about this because we didn't have a lot 
you know, we grew up in a low income area. Um, but I, I mean, for one, I don't know, Patrick, if you have a different opinion, cause we were at different ages, but I always felt like I had everything. Like, I didn't know I was like playing with like secondhand toys or like 99 cent Barbies. Like I was like happy. I felt very spoiled by all of you guys, <laughs> but like looking back at it now, I was like, Oh, we were playing with like toys that Papi would pick up from houses that he'd work on. You know, like I still remember he'd like bring bags of toys for me and Patrick and we'd be so excited. And like now looking back, I was like, oh my gosh, those were like all secondhand toys. But you know, like in the moment, I didn't really like think anything of it. It was just our reality. I, I had no, no trace or idea uh, or thought of I'm in a poor family or I am in a low income family. I, I had none of that. Everything mm-hmm. that I needed was taken care of. I needed, uh, if I was hungry, we had food. If I was thirsty, we had juice, water, soda, not as so much soda because I know mm-hmm. mom got crazy with some of that stuff, uh, limiting our sugar. But <laughs> if, if solo coca, because, you know, that's a remedy. Solo coca. Coca con limon. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I, I didn't have any of that. I didn't, I didn't know we were poor until probably uh, high school, I would say. Because that's when I started seeing everybody with their cell phones, with their smartphones, with a laptop, with the newest things. And I started looking back. I'm like, why don't I have any of that? I don't need it, but why don't I have any of that? Um, So I really had no concept of us being in a low-income family Mm -hmm. for almost 15 years of my life. Yeah. No, honestly, same. But for Enzo and Kevin, you guys experienced a different childhood and then you went to the U.S. and experienced a whole different lifestyle. So how was that experience for you? Like, did you guys know, like, we're in the ghetto. <laughs> we're in the hood right now. <laughs> like, did you guys know that? Like, how was that experience for you guys? Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest, at that age, that's not even what you're thinking. Like, you're not even thinking about where you're at or what you're doing or pretty much taking a concept as to the surrounding you're in. You just know that you're in a new place, something completely different from where you were. Mm. So I think we just to give just to give context. Sorry, I know I said no interrupting, but just to give context, how old were you guys at that time when you had just moved? Patrick was young, but like how old were you guys? Well Patrick wasn't young. Patrick wasn't born till we got here. So Patrick was still in the belly. (laughs) <laughs> well let me just give context to those listening patrick and i are six years apart and then you guys i, I don't even know your guys' age anymore <laughs> oh, two years apart two years i'm sorry kevin is 40 <laughs> kevin and enzo you're three years apart two years two years well, we might as well be twins <laughs> <laughs> and patrick and enzo how what's your what's your age difference we're s- uh, six years apart. Six years, yeah. Go ahead, use your toes if you need to. <laughs> I had to do the math. <laughs> I'm on 1984, Petra's 1990. 90s, baby. Um, mm-hmm. There you go. There you go. Okay, context. Keep going, Kevin. Sorry, I did not mean to <laughs> interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. Um, actually, I think the first place we lived was in Lemon Grove, not far from where we used to. Huh? Oh, no, 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 no. It was a different no, it was house. Grove. It was Lemon Grove because mm-hmm. we were over there with my Tia Gloria. Sorry if I nurtured her name and then she ends up hearing this. But um, we live with Tia Gloria. I remember that because we pretty much got kicked out of Tia Gloria's house for the lonely fact that somebody was getting into fights with our cousins. And so 
And <laughs> it was just the whole, from there we moved to Bates Street. And from Bates Street, I, I can't remember that far now. But from there, those two places, I know the most because those are the first two places that we lived at. And it was just new. It was just new. We, for one, we didn't understand nobody. And <laughs> we had to rely on our cousins who weren't so reliable to trans, uh, translate everything to us. And we got into a lot of fights. We got into fights uh, with cousins. We got into fights with, unfortunately, the people we lived around there. <laughs> when when y'all when mentioned about not being light, we weren't light by, unfortunately to say, a lot of the African-American people that lived in that area. And I don't know if it was due to the fact that we're new. I don't know if it was due to the fact that we didn't speak anything, so they probably thought we were just ignoring them. But I don't know if anyone remembers. Remember on top of that, um, right, there was that hill on Bay Street that we always slid down with the boxes, which that was fun. I don't recommend it nowadays because people did get jacked up, but it was fun. <laughs> and we would come down this hill. The hill was literally on the back of that laundromat, and we would just fly off the laundromat. That was fun. I think that's what got a little bit crazy from nowadays. But that makes me a lot. But I remember that. Enzo and I and our cousins were chilling on top of there. And this group of three, four dudes showed up. Unfortunately, they were all African-Americans. And they put, this is where it gets kind of hazy because I don't know if it was from, they did it to me or to Enzo, but they put something around their necks and started squeezing it. I don't know if you remember that, Enzo, but uh, I didn't remember that. That wasn't me. I think that was you. It was me. Yeah, like there was, they literally were choking us or choking me with something on my neck. And that's when we knew, that, that's when I knew, like, you know what? I got to continue protecting my family. I got to continue, like, <laughs> having them hurt me instead of hurting them. So mm-hmm. that's why I think that's why I, I got a lot closer with Enzo because I was going to protect Enzo no matter what. So if he was the closest one to me, he was always with me. And the teaching play. <laughs> but yeah, that, like that, that kind of stuff like that. That's the first few experiences that we got when we got here. And then we also, of course, we got into fights with our cousins because mm-hmm. our cousins didn't like certain facts about us. I don't know what, but I remember we were on the um, monkey bars. Not monkey bars. Um, the one that pretty much is like well, like a monkey bar, but it's just like a big old cone, like a dome. They could go in and out and um, climb it pretty much. And we were on top. Mm-hmm. And then me and Enzo were on top. And then one of our cousins kept throwing rocks at us from the bottom. And I remember one of those rocks ended up hitting me in the head. And they were laughing. <laughs> and, and we run off and mm-hmm. go home and this and that. And then pretty much the next time we see him, it's like nothing happened. But yeah, like these are the first experiences that we got here. Yeah. I know you said Bay Street, Lemon Grove. What what did those places look like? Because I remember uh, Bay Street to a very small extent. <laughs> so what do these places look like? Because they're not your sunny San Diego picturesque. I kid you not. I didn't even see the beach until maybe high school. So mm-hmm. I didn't even know we lived close to the beach. To be to be straight up honest. 
we spent time mm-hmm. at home studying or me and Ezra would play outside sports. So we lived in the area where pretty much you would see the helicopter, the police helicopters on top. Um, the police would patrol often. I remember used to, whenever they come around Bay Street, they would come around. Me and Ezra would always ask for stickers. Sometimes they'll give it to us, sometimes they don't have them. Damn budget cuts. It's kind of sad because we always thought that we were going to get them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love the, those stickers. I'm sorry, but... Yeah. Yeah, those areas were pretty much ghetto areas. Like there were areas where now that I'm thinking about it, like yeah. this. But at that moment, we didn't see it as a ghetto area. We just saw it as a new place. But these areas were, in the literally sense, ghetto areas to where crime did happen. And you, you know what's crazy is that we we still live like kind of close to the Bates, and we mm-hmm. we drive there, you know, every now and then. And it's crazy how little has changed, like it's still the same area. It's still known as the hood. It's still like people don't like going there after a certain hour, like little, like very, very little has changed. Yet it's up the road from San Diego state, one of the most prominent universities in the CSU system, but it's literally this hole in the wall neighborhood that doesn't get the beautification process or programs. And it's, it's just, that's why I wanted Kevin to paint the picture. Cause I don't want people to think, ah, oh, they're living these this life, but I mean, you're in San Diego. How bad could it be? Yeah, yeah. I didn't even. We didn't even grow up going to the beach. <laughs> no, no <we laughs> right, Patrick. Like I, I don't remember ever going to the beach except for Fourth of July. No, yeah. Fourth of July was like our, or whenever I remember when um, Velma had a boyfriend. I think it was Josiah, and we would go to like the beach every now and then. I think, but we got in an accident once. Yeah, <laughs> That's that, like yeah. my, my only beach memory is like when we got in an accident with Kevin. <laughs> it's true. We, I mean, I live in San Jose now, which is 45 minutes away from the nearest beach. And I think my kids go to the beach more than I have in my life in San Diego. And that's because sometimes we'll be bored and it's a hot weekend. Let's go to the beach. Or, hey, it's 4th of July weekend um, and have the Friday off. Let's go to the beach before the rush hits. So we we have a completely different life. In San Diego, if it wasn't for a big holiday, I'm not talking about Veterans Day, Memorial Day, none of that. We're talking about 4th of July, and that's probably it. <laughs> if it wasn't a 4th of July <laughs> or a big church event, we weren't at the beach. We were at home. Because going to the beach meant you're buying food to go to the beach. You're buying drinks to go to the beach. You're hauling seven-plus kids and everybody else in uh, in cars to go to the beach. So it was never just, uh, hey, guys, I'm bored. Hey, kids, I'm bored. Let's go to the beach. It was we're, we're staying in the area we're in. And to add to Kevin and your point about Bay Street and uh, the way it looked, when we moved, and I know we'll talk about the homelessness piece, but when we moved, we moved to Santa Margarita Street to a yeah, in Tanto area, which is no, not much better. <laughs> just down the street from an intersection that I walked to school at called Four Corners of Death for a reason. There was a gang, a rival gang in each direction, and they'd meet at those intersections to brawl it out. And that's the area we lived in. We lived mm-hmm. in a very, a very poorly maintained apartment complex that was gated off for security reasons, but wasn't much safer on the inside. And I still remember the the locked door would never work, so anybody can walk in. But it's 
it's it's a different type of San Diego. Or the, not the, the door, the gate. Yeah, or the yeah. gate. The gate wasn't working, so it's open all day, and you just see these cars of very suspicious-looking individuals, and outwardly suspicious-looking, like they didn't care that they knew they looked like this. But still, it's a, it's not a, it's not the picturesque San Diego you see on the mm-hmm. visit San Diego.com commercials or. The ones that you see in movies when they portray it, or the Coronado, which is uh, over the bridge that Marilyn Monroe was in love with. We we would even look at those cameras and be like, "Dang, that's nice." Right? <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I still look at San Diego brochures, and I was like, "I've never been there. Right? <laughs> I want right? to go." And so, do you want to add? Do you want to add anything about like this experience, just like growing up? Even we can even talk about like moving to Santa Margarita and how that experience for you guys. Again, I was really little during all this. So like, I remember bits and pieces, but I was very protected from your realities, you know? Uh, so to, I'm going to start off with what Kevin started off to have. We, people are trying to bully us since we got here because we came from Honduras. Even our own cousins trying to bully us. They pushed us to a point that the anger that we felt inside, we're expressing it through our actions. The reason, <laughs> the reason why people, when I was little, the reason why people were picking on me is because I was a quiet one. Kevin wasn't. Kevin talked. So I was a quiet one. Until they push a limit that I just grab anything I have around me, I just beat them. I didn't care what it was. I didn't care if it was a pitchfork. I didn't care if it was a bat. I just chased him with them. And that's the reason why we got kicked out of my Tia Gloria's house because I got a page for you and chased one of my cousins. What? Yeah, I, I would, didn't I know that. To share that information. I didn't want to be the one. <laughs> I was like, what, six or seven? Like fresh out of the boat, basically. Uh, <laughs> well, what are you coming about? We're coming to bus. You know, let's change that out again. But, hey, fresh off the bus, then. <laughs> fresh off the bus. <laughs> There was so much I didn't know about Kevin and Enzo's childhood in Honduras and in the U.S. I knew my mom's story and how she left her riches to seek refuge from an abusive relationship, but I never stopped to think about how my brothers and sisters must have felt. To give you some perspective on their life in the U.S., while Kevin and Enzo went through what they were going through, my mom was a single mother of five kids. Y solo Dios sabe how she worked all her jobs and still managed to be a mother through it all. By day, she cleaned houses, sold Mary Kay, Princess House, Avon, Herbalife, and after work, she'd plan family parties and sell Honduran food. After those parties, she would sit down at her sewing machine for hours to make clothes and sell. Then she met my dad, her best friend, someone my brothers could look up to and eventually call dad too. But that's when their life changed, and that's when I came about. He made us tell him our point of view. We never, ever got spanked by him. We never, ever got yelled by him because he always hear our part of the story too. So he told us what happened and and we said it. We told everything that happened. We told him that we never messed with them, stuff like that. This is later on in years. Like when we're already in our teens, we found out that our cousin were building crap, were telling crap to them so they could fight us. That's our teen years. But this is when we were toddlers, man. So my, uh, my dad just said, well, my dad, our dad said, <laughs> um, he just said, okay, 
It's just a Latino thing. <laughs> Our dad said, okay, you're defending yourself. You think guys didn't do nothing wrong? You're defending yourself. That's how you did. That's how my dad said, and my mom took it the same way. Okay, you're defending yourself. But even though, my, even though mom, like, had the mentality of, all right, you did something wrong, you're going to get spanked. But with dad's help, we didn't get spanked. He saved us our nalgas because <laughs> we didn't get spanked at all. <laughs> so, God knew what's up with that because we weren't looking for yeah. a dad. <laughs> we weren't looking for a dad. I don't think mom was looking for someone to replace a dad, but he helped us out. He helped us out to stand up for ourselves because this world where we're at, all right, I'm going to correct you, Kevin. It's Logan Heights. It was the first place we went to. Second place we went to is Lemon Grove where Mitya Gladys was at. The reason why I know is because I work close to them. That's the only reason why I know their names. <laughs> Logan Heights is the apartments where I got the pitchfork and chase, you know who. <laughs> no, that's let me. You're right. You're right. I was wrong. Uh, let me go over. It's where mom is at now. My bad. My bad. Kevin Swarty, remember that. <laughs> <laughs> lemon Grove is where Mitya Gladys were at, where the, uh, she was close to the lemon. So if you guys ever Google Lemon Grove, yeah. The lemon is right there. That's where we're close to where we used to be at, which is another ghetto place. The ghetto place. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then after that, we went to uh, Santa Margarita. Mm -hmm. Santa Margarita Mm -hmm. was a a house. That was the apartment complex. Yeah, it was a house. No way. No, Santa Margarita was the apartment apartment, complex. The one that goes all the way up. No, Mm -hmm. so we had a house before that. The house is where Jasmine grew up. And it's, uh, it was close to Helix. Not that far from Helix either. Yeah, it's it's still close by where we live right now. Yeah. It's on... Um, oh, Vista, Grande. Vista, Vista Grande. Vista Grande. Yeah. Vista Grande. <laughs> Vista Grande. Vista Grande. That's what came in. Patrick, <laughs> I've been like Vista Grande. I knew it. <laughs> uh, Vista Grande is a beautiful house. That's where Jasmine grew up. Uh, that's where Jasmine was born at. She was mm-hmm. at the house and everything. And we we used to, because sometimes we didn't have a ride to go to school or come back from school. So we used to walk from Vista Grande all the way to Horseman, which is more than 20 blocks. And it's no joke. It's uphill, downhill. Yes. Damn. Because mm-hmm. back in the days, um, they had no after-school program. So Ramon school finished, walk you, walk you <laughs> back to home. So we had, it's literally like, Shout out to Head Start. <laughs> it's not it's like 15 yeah. to like, I don't know, I say 20 blocks because it is a long, long way. And then after it's not close, and it is a lot of hills too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, after that, we went to Santa, uh, Santa Margarita. That's the one on the hood. That's Southeast Diego. That's Lincoln High. Um, Lincoln That's by Park Barrio Logan too, hood. right? Yeah. yeah. No, Barrio Logan is more towards downtown. Logan Heights is close to where Santa Margarita yeah. is at. But so, it doesn't have that intersection that goes across and it has that one barbecue place on the right side. Yeah, that's uh, that's downtown. That's close to downtown. Oh, okay. So, craziest thing is, not that I didn't, not that I, that I remember, we started from the low, we went all the way around, back to the low. Because Santa Margarita mm-hmm. and Logan Heights are very close to each other. They're only one street away. <laughs> so it's not because, I don't think it's because mom had a lot of kids. It's just that 
the economy itself, it was just going up and down. Mom is an entrepreneur. So whatever she makes is what she, what she gets. Dad is a, cons- a contractor. Contractor is a very uh, challenging job because you face a lot of challenges. You face a lot of other people being contracted, cheaper labor and stuff like that. So it's not because like we want to be in the ghetto, but mom and dad saw a place for us to grow together. And we, no joke, we literally appreciate what the ghetto was. We appreciate where other areas that we moved to because we saw different phases of San Diego through it. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy because like for me, I didn't realize it was the hood or the get. I mean, I was so little. And again, you guys shielded me from a lot of the things that were happening around us. But I do remember this one memory and it's when a shooting happened in front of our apartment complex. And I remember we would, we would drive. I remember when it happened because I was sent to my room to play with my Barbies. But <laughs> I remember going to school and there was like a tape of a body on, on that hill. And I remember asking mommy, I'm like, mommy, ¿qué es eso? And she said, nothing, nothing. And literally I thought it was a game. Like some kids just like left their stuff there. Like so rude. Like that's what, I, that's what I was thinking about. And then like, now I'm like, oh my God, that was a whole body. Like that was a whole thing that was just right in front of, front of our apartment. And we didn't even, I didn't even realize. It was crazy. You didn't tell you, está durmiendo, está durmiendo. No, but switching gears, I want to talk about, we talked a little bit about our upbringings, but I want to talk about a moment that I think changed all of our lives <laughs> and, and a moment that when we experienced homelessness, it was one of those things where like we went through it and it was a big like chunk of like a year, right? It was like six months or so. And then like we got over it. We still kind of struggled because I remember all of us living in that to the one that's like right next to our house right now, but that two, two room, one bathroom cottage, all of us sitting yeah. in there eating microwavable meals. Like I still remember that, like after homelessness happened, we were still struggling, but after we like, month, like we never talked about it again. And then everyone just went their separate ways and we all just like did our own thing. And then that was that. But I know it like one, we all were experiencing different parts of our lives in that moment. And the second thing is we were all affected by it very differently and our paths changed dramatically. So I want to talk about that moment. And I don't know who wants to go first, but just talk about what you remember, your role in that and in, in, in the whole homelessness situation and then how your life was affected after the fact. Well, we could all talk about it because we all have a different face to it. So let's let the old man yeah. do it first. Well, yeah, let's talk about where, where we were. I'm not the old one. I'm sleeping because I don't get sleep because of a baby. Oh, welcome to fatherhood. So real quick, I'll just say where I was. I'm not going to go into the, I'm not going to go into the details. I'll let Kevin uh, take it up, but I was in between high school and college. Mm-hmm. So I was just finishing up high school about to start college. So I was about 17 years old. Actually, and the very yeah. first one in our family to go to college. Yeah. Very first one. It's already a brand new experience. Uh, an experience I had no idea how to prepare for because nobody I knew had ever gone to a four-year university outside of their hometown. So I had no idea what to expect. Um, but I was already dealing with that. And then this happened. 
Um, but Kevin, how old were you? Because I think this was around the same time that you were about to take off to the army, right? No, not yet. Uh, so I was actually mm. over the age of 21. And the other reason I remember this, because through this struggle is the first time that I could actually say that I literally got drunk on purpose to forget all this. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, when we got kicked out, we actually stayed at the very well-known Washington Park place over there where we had every single birthday, every single party that we ever did. <laughs> I've never gone back to the park since. Well, actually, I would love to go see it again, just to go. Um, Same here. But, yeah, that literally became our second home. Although it was our second home. But I remember we had the Explorer. No, I'm sorry, the Expedition. We had that truck. And we had my little Toyota Terso, 84 Toyota Terso. I don't know how it was running, but it was car. running. I don't know how it was running, but it was running, though. <laughs> so, and I actually put a lot of work into it. Um, that's the one that taught me how to do a lot of mechanics stuff due to that car and the expedition. Besides that, though. So, um, we spent a few days there. Then we actually got invited to go spend with some one of our family friend's house, our apartment. But she could only have us there for seven days and we actually had to leave and go back to the park. But I was working at that time. And I was to the point where I was frustrated. So I said, you know what? I've never drank before that. I literally never had drank before I turned the age of 21. I almost did at a quinceanera, but mom caught me. I remember that. <laughs> she got me and she gave us the tongue lashing of our life. <laughs> so, yeah, we ended up putting those drinks down and we ended up pretty early, uh, leaving that place early. But prior to that, we ne- I never drank. I uh, never actually wanted to drink due to the fact that I seen how alcohol had affected our uncles, how it affected our biological dad, and affected certain other family members that are close to us. Mm-hmm. So in my concept, in my ideas, I'm like, you know what? Alcohol is a bad guy. Alcohol is, I'm never going to charge alcohol due to the fact that I actually do this, 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 this. Pretty much I cut guys alcohol with them and them with alcohol. So I was like, you know what? I'm never going to drink. But uh, yeah, the first time I ever got drunk was due to the fact that I was tired of living in a car I was tired of going to people's other people's houses and sleeping on the floor in the living room mm-hmm. and busting my butt every single day working, seeing my seeing mom and dad working, and we pretty much had nothing to show for it. Although we still had our the nuclear family, we still had each other. But I just felt like you know what, what in the world is going on? So I said, you know what, screw it, I'm gonna go out and drink. And yeah, the, and the mom called me. <laughs> mom called me because I came home very late. I think I'm like two in the morning. First time ever coming home that late. Um, I was scared of mom, so I would never come home that late. And and Kevin is mom's favorite child, she, so that says a lot. She says that to make it feel good. <laughs> I am the favorite. Yeah. It's okay, though. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, Patrick, Patrick forced mom to record herself saying that he's a favorite child just so he could Fake play it to news. himself all the time. But mom <laughs> says that I'm a favorite child. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, like mom called me and she got on me. And I told mom, like, I'm just tired. Like, I'm tired of all this. I'm tired of not being able to do anything. I'm tired of, I'm always, always, always working. We have nothing to show for it. We, have, we don't even have a place to stay. Well, I mean, we, we, when we set up um, um, at the park, we would you literally go use a rest, the public restroom that smells like meados, like caca from the last week that was still there. And we'd have to go in there, get changed, for you guys to go to school, for me to go to work, for everybody to do their own stuff. And I don't know, I just got tired. I was like, you know what? What the hell? Might as well get drunk and see what it does. But yeah. after I got the flashing of my life on mom, <laughs> I was like, you know what? I need to I need to fix myself. I need to be able to see what I could do to build up help the family out pretty much. So I thought it was a downfall, but it also built character. So yeah. I think that's what made me a stronger, a stronger character. Like, like everybody, I don't know how to whistle, but I do know how to, like, I do know how to use my voice to where it's actually heard. <laughs> but I don't know how to whistle. I kid you not. I really, I still, to this day I right still now, don't know how to whistle artist. either. Kylie. <laughs> no. And so where were you in that moment when we were going through homelessness? Like talk about, talk about your experience. I was in the last semester of Sawashi College to get my associates in architecture. Because my whole goal was to get an associate in architecture. So when I go to university, I wouldn't have to take no general classes. I would just go straight to major. But at that time, I was going through a very, very tough class because you needed a working space to be building models out of paper and it was not like once a week it was like two models a week and then like it was saying a whole bunch of stuff um we had to turn in a whole bunch of stuff per week and i didn't want to show that embarrassment to my teacher that's saying well i don't have a space at home to work for so um, i was to a close to a point of saying that you know what i'm just gonna drop the class screw it like i'm not gonna be able to finish it i'm not gonna be able to do anything about it i'm just gonna have to just say forget it forget the degree and stuff like that but something in me like i said like mom built us to finish what we start mom created us to finish what we start no matter how hard it is financially no matter how hard it is with materials she told us to finish what we started i mean i can remember and over and over and dad too that always encouraged us to pursue something bigger pursue something bigger Little did I know that the class that I was taking, it was not necessary for me to take it because I already took most of the class to get my associates. But if I would have quit, if I would have said, you know what, screw this, I would have quit in a lot of areas of my life of not pursuing because it got tough. But mm-hmm. because I keep remembering uh, mom's voice and dad's voice saying, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. Like I uh, passed all my class, my last semester, I passed all my class with A's. I, fin- mm-hmm. I graduated with 3.3 um, as an associate's degree in, in architecture. I, I felt proud that I got the degree, but I felt incomplete that I couldn't, couldn't do more because of our situation going through homelessness. 
there's a lot of projects that I had to leave at school because we couldn't take it anywhere else because we didn't have a home and and stuff like that. And I remember that we went through that tough time of not finding homes, not because we weren't we weren't financially um, we weren't financially ready. Is that we couldn't find no home. We have no idea what happened. I remember when we used to work with dad, me and Kevin, um, there were home sales everywhere, home from rent, stuff like that. But when we hit rock bottom uh, at our place, there was no place to, to go to. Of course, Kevin said that. This is also 2008. Yeah, it was 2008. So that gives people context too. It was 2008. And I noticed that in that August of 2008, I had my degree already, even without that class that I took. So, and the only way I found out that I had that degree is because I I told, um, I went to the front office and I said, okay, I finished my last class. When it, when am I going to take my my declaration to get my diploma? When, when do I have to sign? And they were telling me, you already graduated. You have your degree already. I'm <laughs> going, what? I didn't even walk. <laughs> and they were saying, yeah, yeah. You, graduated, you graduated in the spring. So I was thinking in my head, I'm like, oh my goodness, are you serious? I could, I should, I didn't have to take that class that was building so much stress, especially in, with our living situation. And I was stressing out to the point that I wanted to quit in a lot of things in life. I want to, um, I never turned to alcohol because I was, um, I was, my biological dad, I always saw him. I was always very close to him, put it that way. And when I saw him drinking at a younger age, when I was in a younger age and he was drinking, um, I saw like a different person. And I always said, you know what? Screw it. I'm never going to drink because of that. And I stuck mm-hmm. to it. I stuck to it because I didn't want to um, go through what he has created himself to be. I want to do something better. I want to be something better for sure. And that's the reason why I didn't want to quit school. That's the reason why I pursued no matter how hard and tough financially it was. No joke, I use everybody's recycling material to build those models. <laughs> uh, people were throwing away paper and stuff like that. I was recycling them. I was using them for my models. And my models are not small. As you guys already know, the models are huge. You guys know, like, yeah, I literally... I still remember I, them. I still remember your architecture table. <laughs> Yeah. I would always play by there. <laughs> <laughs> and I went like many days without sleep just to finish a project because we didn't have that living space. But yeah, it was tough. The greatest thing is what mom and dad built in us not to never quit. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I remember too is we, you probably lost up to Enzo, but I remember we lost like uh, one or two storages with all of our belongings because we couldn't make the payments. Um, and I remember for some reason, this is so like clear to me, but I remember crying specifically over Enzo losing some architecture stuff. Yeah. And I was like, but he's worked so hard on those models and blah, blah. And I like, remember being like really sad over them specifically. Like that's just like one vivid memory I have of like that moment. It was a tough one. Homelessness is a turning point for all of us. 
Yes, we faced struggle after struggle, so it wasn't new, but this one hit hard and was the most surreal for all of us. I share my story often and I think I've healed through that, but my brothers, they've never opened up about it. Our families never talked about it. Era una cosa que queríamos olvidar. It was something we wanted to forget. So you can imagine how it feels to finally talk about homelessness and how it affected us 12 years after the fact. This was a very therapeutic moment for all of us. And unfortunately, this is something a lot of marginalized communities have to go through. In search of El Sueño Americano isn't always rainbows and butterflies. How we remember, or at least like I remember when the storage, we lost like our, was it two storages or was it one? I can't remember. There's two of them. Um, I remember we had lost our storages because we couldn't make the payments. And I remember like how, like this is like such a vivid memory of being like hella sad that Enzo had lost his architecture stuff. Cause I know how much he poured so much into it. And like, of course we all lost a lot of things there and things that I don't even remember. But for some reason, like I remember that very vividly, like just crying over Enzo losing his like creations, his art. And I was just sharing that, but. And I, I do remember that it's, uh, so do you want me to go into my section of the yep. issue? Um, so pretty much where I was at, like I said before, was I was coming out of high school, getting ready to go on this brand new adventure of college. Um, it's for those of you that don't know our family, we come from a very religious upbringing. Um, so we have very firm beliefs in Christianity and coming out of high school, I had this very firm Christian belief, Christian morals that I decided would navigate my life. And during the summertime in between, I had to go through the EOP uh, summer bridge program because I was low income, minority, uh, first generation. So it was a bridge program to help those students pretty much know what college is and what to expect. So we lived on campus for about a week. And when I left San Diego to come to San Jose, I was already scared. I was, I was afraid. I was like, oh, my God, I don't know what to expect. Um, I don't know what it's going to be like. And then I spent the week there, and I was texting back and forth, calling mom, you know, having these conversations with everybody back home. And everything seemed normal. Like, nothing seemed like it. Nothing wrong seemed like it was happening. And I still remember it wasn't until uh, until I got picked up from the summer bridge program that I started sensing there was something wrong. Ooh, ooh. Sorry, I gotta fight the gotta fight the emotions. Um <laughs> yeah. Y'all so, can get emotional, it's fine. It's a it's a hard topic. That's that's how we're in this. <laughs> you got the right idea. You have glasses on. Um, but no, and that's where I started sensing something was wrong with mom and dad. You know, dad was still cracking jokes. He was still being goofy self. But you could tell there was like a burden on him. Mom, she was asking me how things were going. She asked me how it was. But with her, you could tell she wasn't as happy as she usually is. My mom is a ray of sunshine. Um, or our mom, like, like I like to say. And so we're driving <laughs> and we were on the freeway and I know what exits we're supposed to take. I mean, I'm in high school. I better know how to get around. 
um, we miss our exit. And I'm like, where are we going? And she's like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, we're just going to go here right now. And I'm like, go where? She's like, just don't worry about it. I'm like, all right, whatever. I have no reason to believe anything is wrong. So then we exit and we go up this steep hill and I'm like, where the fuck are we going? And it's, it's this steep hill with a bunch of random houses on each side of it. Um, and then we pull up to an apartment complex or not an apartment complex, but it's more like a, a small kind of single unit complex. And I was, and we parked. Section like, eight housing. A. Yep. Yes. <laughs> communal, uh, communal freaking front yard kind of st- style, single units just across this very small lot. And, and, and I remember asking them, I'm like, it's late. It's, uh, I think it was like 10 o'clock or nine o'clock. I'm like, why are we here? I'm tired. Like, let's go home. <laughs> but trying, I'm trying. Whew, all right. And, um, but that's when mom turned to me. I was like, okay, I'm good. For those of you that know me, and and honestly, all right. But yeah, for those of you that know me, I'm not a very emotional person. I sometimes uh, I sometimes take it as a compliment. People are like, "Wow, like you're not very emotional." You're, I don't. I don't outwardly show emotion too much. It's hard because we've never, ever talked about these experiences. Well, and honestly, so, so this experience actually was the big reason. But it was a big reason why I don't show emotion. And it, and it, it was really because of that. I, I mean, we were all going through this together. We were all going through this hardship. But it was so surreal. We never, we never really took a took a chance to talk about it or to. Or to really, I guess, sit down and um, sit down and really address it. I mean, we weren't afforded that luxury. We were in the struggle. We were in in the hurt. We were in this limbo where we didn't know what was going to happen, and we were kind of forced to just suck it up. We got to figure it out. Suck it up. We got to figure it out. And and in all reality, in all honesty, um, that's. That's sort of how I live my life now. I mm-hmm. I suck it up and figure it out. No time to cry about it. No time to ponder, what if I did this? What if, nope, we have an issue, we figure it out. No time to weep about it. Nope. And, 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 and that's what's the hard part mm-hmm. because, so I'll, I'll finish it and hopefully I can compose myself. Um, but when we pulled up and parked, that's when mom turned to me. She said, we're sleeping here. 
And I was like, what do you mean we're sleeping here? I don't even know who lives here. Who lives here? And that's what she said. She, she's like, yes, Danielle lives here. We're going to sleep with her for a few nights. And then we're going to we're gonna figure things out. All the meanwhile, I still haven't been told that we don't have our house or we don't have our apartment, uh, apartment unit. And so the, the really hard part for me was I knew, I knew we were low income. I knew we weren't well off. I knew, I knew all these things. And at the same time, growing up, I've always been very observant my whole life. I was always that kid that whenever my siblings were doing their, their, um, Whenever they were doing their bad stuff, I was always riding shotgun with them. I was always there. If my sister wanted to go see her boyfriend and she needed an excuse, we would say we're going to the store and then she'd go see her boyfriend. I'd be riding shotgun. Um and and that was and I and I knew I knew that's what they were doing. But kind of to Kevin's point, I would I in my mind I, I thought if I'm there, nothing will happen. And so I've always been observant. I've always been in these different situations, different scenarios where I was forced to grow up very early. So I've always had a different mindset. I've always had a different train of thought. And and for this situation, I felt super betrayed. All right. I felt super betrayed. Going to the San Jose State College uh, EOP program, I was there. I was the most, if, if you could put a label on it, I was the most Christian kid in that campus. We were we were doing programs throughout the whole week that I was there. Um, in one way, shape, or another, my religion always came out. My beliefs in Christ, my beliefs in God always came out. and. That was really the message I was giving. I was that Christian kid. I still remember my roommate, he ended up uh, slipping on the middle of the night and going to drink with some other guys. And he came back and I was like, dude, where were you? He's like, oh, you know, we went to so-and-so's room and we were drinking a little bit. And I was like, oh, why didn't you let me know? Like, I would have hung out. He's like, oh, we know you wouldn't drink. So we, we just figured we wouldn't invite you. Because that's all we were doing. But that's because I was known to be that Christian kid. So then coming back, I'm just, I, was, I remember the first night, everybody was sleeping on the floor. Each person had a sleeping bag or they had um, a blanket. And I still remember not being able to sleep. And the the only thing I could think of was if I'm over here living the way I'm supposed to, per my, per my, per my Christian belief, if I'm holding all the, the commandments and all all the directives that God has given us to live our lives by, why would He betray us like this? <laughs> I know it's deep. I know, but that's really where my spiraling came from. 
<laughs> that's deep. really what caused me to to mm-hmm. spiral out of control in college. Like I still remember coming back. Um, the first week I was back, I, I came back on a on a Friday because we were we we're going to start school on that Monday or something like that. It was close to the weekend. And I remember my EOP friends, especially my roommate during that week-long program, they reached out. They were like, hey, you're on campus. Let's hang out. Let's, let's do something. Let's let's go walk around. Let's go see where our classes are. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And, and his first comment to me after we hung out for uh, a couple hours was, hey, are you all right? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you're different. He's like, you're cussing up a storm. You're you're making all these uh just kind of weird remarks. He's like, you're you're not acting like the way you were in the program. And he was like, dude, is everything okay? I was like, yeah, no, everything's good. And I still I still remember um the comment that kind of ingrained it all for me. He was like, Patrick, he's like you don't you don't seem very happy right now. He's like, you 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 seem kind of angry. He's like, are you sure you're all you're right? And I still remember my response to him. I'm like, dude, fuck the emotions. Come on, let's just keep going. Let's go do all this other stuff. And that's really what that, that's really the mentality I had after that. No one is here. Nobody's going to be protecting me. Nobody's going to be looking out for me. Yeah. I I can't trust, and, and, and it's not even my parents' fault, but to me it was, I can't trust somebody else having control of my situation. So all of a sudden I have these deep, deeply enrooted uh, mm-hmm. trust control, uh, trust issues, control issues, where I couldn't let somebody take the reins. I had to do it because if I'm doing it, I'm aware of what's going to happen. If I'm doing it, I can prevent the worst from happening. I will figure it out. Nobody else will decide this for me. Now I was going to say we're all going. We were all going through very different experiences at the time. And one thing that I always observed during these moments was that none of us really talked about what we were going through. At least maybe I thought I was just the only one that didn't talk about it because I was the youngest one. But I just felt like everyone was going through so much, but no one knew how to like talk about it. And I remember Papi would always just kind of keep humor alive. And it was just like, try to have fun, try to like enjoy the moment. And like, I still remember being so like depressed and wanting to talk to someone about it. And I didn't, I didn't talk to my friends about it because we were taught to always keep a good reputation and never, you know, la ropa sucia se lava en casa, you know, never open up about what's going on at home. So I couldn't talk to friends about it. I couldn't talk to anyone about it. And then my family, I was like, I didn't want to talk to anyone else about it because we were all going through so much. So it was, it was such a hard moment for, I think, all of us <laughs> in our own way, in our own respect, because we were going through very different situations and we didn't really have an avenue to talk about it. I mean, so we, we go through this horrible situation. Um, we have to sleep in, we have to couch surf pretty much. And as as one person, you could already tell how difficult it is to couch surf. Now add nine people, nine people couch surfing in already cramped units and already cramped spacing, using our vehicles as our storage, as our 
dressers, as our dirty clothes, as our laundromat. And, and then we moved to this cottage, which is way better than anything. Um, or it was way better than, than having nothing, really. But we moved to this cottage where it's two bedrooms for nine people, one bathroom. And I'll speed up a little bit, but then shortly thereafter, we faced, and, and that was really, I would say, the, the deciding factor for so much. Because shortly thereafter, you have one sister moving to Indiana, one brother going to the Army, and then the other brother going to school hundreds of miles away. So we lose. We lose the home. We lost our home. God damn. Um, we lost the home. Yeah. I know exactly where this is going to. But to me, it felt like we lost our family. Mm-hmm. We lost the nucleus. It wasn't... It wasn't seeing my sister off in a happy way and this joyful way. Congrats, you're married now. Go live your life. It wasn't seeing our patriot of a brother who's going to serve his country and give all he has for this country. It wasn't, it wasn't a joyful goodbye. It wasn't a proud goodbye. It was a very, felt very, very lonely. Yeah, it was a very painful, very yep. Very burdensome, very, very grief-filled goodbye. Yeah, we lost four walls, but it, it sucks because it feels like in, in that moment, we lost the nucleus. We lost our family. In the deepest of troubles, our unity was there. We found a quick Band-aid approach, but then we lost the nucleus. Kevin went to the army. He's all he's he's mm-hmm. going through basic training. He's going through all these uh, different rigorous courses with this grief. Velma's going to start this new life, start this new chapter with grief. I go to college and start this brand new journey that nobody can could ever have prepared me for with grief, with resentment, with anger, with with just so much hate. All right, I've talked too much. Somebody else got to cut in now. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I, uh, I was going to interfere a little bit, but I wanted you to speak to them. Um, I use drawing as a, a way out, I guess, to numb what's going on. Um, I showered at school most of the times. Like the, the uh, became close friends with a janitor guy, so he could wash my clothes. Yeah. I used the gym as an exit of pain. I care less about people. I have no sympathy for people at all. Someone could be hurting in front of me. It wouldn't affect me. Um, 
I was a very cold person in a lot of areas. Um, but I just didn't care. I did feel betrayed. Um, I felt betrayed by by God. I'm gonna be honest with you guys. I don't know if you got if anybody knows our story, but I was the last one that actually got into church because I was all about if you're gonna be real with what your beliefs, show me. Don't freaking just tell me, just show me. Um, out of all my brother and sister, I was the last one that said yes to God because I had so much, um, so much, um, burden holding me down completely. When I lost all my architecture stuff, I said, this is it. This is it. I'm not going to do nothing no more. My first reaction was to join the military. I was supposed to join the military, but then something in me wanted to finish school more. Um, so I reapplied to school without mom knowing, without dad knowing. I reapplied to school to give my uh, my associates in business. Like even though it was gonna be more money out of here, I just wanted, I just wanted to basically numb the situation. I was tired of the way it was. Like in, like they were saying that we went to a person as close to the family. I didn't feel comfortable being around that area, especially that we uh, that we had history. I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't want to be there. I slept in a car most of the times. Um, I just didn't want to show my emotion to mom or dad, or none of you guys either. Um. I was always a serious person. I mean, I was no longer the person that cracked jokes around and stuff like that. I know my surroundings with drawing completely, with writing, drawing, everything. When I say write out of me, I'm writing a book. I'm saying like I'm doing cursive and all that design. But uh, I was, I was out of it. When I was, I didn't know where I was going to lead to. All I know is that my last option was going to be in the military. But luckily that I didn't have to. I'm going to be honest with you guys. Um, luckily I didn't have to. And I started seeing the light even when I thought there was no more. But what Patrick said was true. Like, yes, we put a band into the wound, but the wound was the nucleus of the family. That was, was the main structure of the whole entire wound, was having the family together. It would have been beautiful if we all left the house, freaking married and all. Um, leaving the house the right way, but put it that way. But um, we had to adapt to, our, uh, to the situation we, had, we were in. We, there was no way out. We, we literally had to adapt. And like what Patrick said, you be numb to the situation, but you adapt to the environment. Um, I know mom always told us we're like, we're like our soldiers. We adapt to the situation and we overcome things. And that's exactly what we did. Kevin overcame the situation being overseas. Patrick overcame his long distance relationship with us. And I overcame fighting it through my own self because I didn't want to have, I didn't want to leave mom or dad a burden of financial with my schooling. And 
this is why I always saw it as a joy every time Patrick came down or when we went up. Um, I know I haven't been in Texas, but <laughs> I always saw it. I always saw it a good joy because we were always together. The guys were always together, no matter what. Even to do bad things, we're always together. <laughs> um, hey, yeah, I was there too. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the fact that no matter what we went through, dude, like we we stood up taller than where we were at. We're in a better place yeah. than we're at. Yeah. Kevin, I don't know if you want to add anything. No, like for me, honestly, I, I don't know. Maybe just me, but I didn't feel like I had a burning in my heart. I just, I just saw it as to we got something else we got to deal with. Because prior to that, I also remember that dad lost his job. And dad lost his job. <clears throat> and the only person working with me while we were in this little cottage, like I just said. <laughs> and the other person was working with me. And then and while I was while I was still doing working, I was also going to school. I just thought this if I'm gonna have a family, I'm gonna do everything that I can to make sure that that family had to go through any of this. So to me, I decided I'm more of a, I'm going to keep pushing myself. I'm going to get and make everything better. And yeah, it was rough. It was rough to the fact that being the only person working and pretty much making just above minimum wage, like about two, three, four dollars more than minimum wage. And yeah, and um, yeah, I, I, honestly, I didn't feel like I wanted the burden. I felt like I was going to, I was going to face this no matter what. But I have to, like Patrick said, though, I have to find a solution to it. Even if that solution is busting my butt, doing anything I can, I'm going to push, I'm going to push, I'm going to push, no matter what. And honestly, when I first joined the Army, I was in no shape to be in the Army. So I saw everybody, everybody was there, like, run a lot better than me, do push-ups a lot better than me, do sit-ups a lot better than me. I saw a lot of them that knew more about ranks than I did. But I don't know, to me, I was like, you know what? I, I, I joined at 26. So I'm like, I didn't go like right after high school, like everybody else did. Like, I went when I was 26. So I was, I was a little older, I already had life experience. So I was like, you know what? I might be the older one or not, but I'm going to bust my butt. I'm, gonna, I'm, like, I'm not going to let. My age, the fact that these kids are younger and a lot more fit than I am, uh, going to be that pretty much my downfall. I'm going to say, I always say, I'm going to push myself. I'm going to get better. And actually, I started progressing. So everything that I've faced, everything like all these downfalls that we had, I always say, you know what? It's going to be a way for me to better myself. It's going to be a way for me to better myself. Like, as though I did question my faith a few times, but I was like, you know what? No matter how much I question it, I know there's always an answer. So that's why, I, like, I always stuck with Dad. I was stuck with him, and like, I still pretty much just like teach me what he knows. Yeah, and remember, Dad yeah. didn't lose his job because of the finances. He hurt his back, so the job basically didn't want to pay his medical and just let him go. No, it's a lot. 
this, I feel like it's so crazy for me to have this conversation with you guys because we've never, ever talked about it. And it's been a moment that I think, not, not that I think I know affected all of us in so many different ways. And it changed again, like I said, like it changed our trajectories so much. And I changed our characters. It changed the way that we navigate the world. We navigate relationships. We navigate workplace. Like it just changed everything about us. And it's just crazy for me because we've never had this moment to talk. <laughs> What's up, Pat? <laughs> Well, no, I was, I was just going to say, um, I composed myself, so don't worry, everybody, you're going to understand me better. But it it, it it does suck because, and I'll speak for myself, but it definitely changed me. It, I mean, like I said before, it changed my whole method of, of being, really. I was this completely new person that anybody who had met me prior to would not believe what, it was the same person. It changed the way I perceived issues. It changed the way I handle issues. I am the type that prevents issues before they happen. And I can't stand when people um, say, well, just let's see what happens. I'm like, no, you plan for the worst, you hope for the best. And that has always been my attitude ever since then. You plan for the worst, you hope for the best. If the best happens, great. Good job. If the worst happens, I'm planned for it already. I am prepared for it already. And it's it's really, I will say, as as a newly father and a, a, a few years now being a stepfather, it has changed the way I I engage with kids. Um, it, it changed the way not only my kids but just kids in general. You know, coming out of college, I, I I found my passion in helping the community, helping people. When it, when before or before college and before all this, I I, I liked the law enforcement side of things. Uh, we all used to play with our GI Joes, with our different military toys. But, Cops and but robbers. in college, that's where it changed. It shifted. I I was still going down that route because that's all I knew I wanted to do. But then it shifted to seeing the community aspect of it, being a case manager for youth on probation, um, helping them through their issues, working with youth that were both in dependency court and juvenile court and helping them through their issues, helping helping somebody apply to a job, find their own housing security, and ultimately to then going to the city of San Jose and doing that on a larger scale. And... I never, and I joke about it now, but it's deeply rooted in this pain, in this hurt. I never would have seen myself going the administrative route. Because to me, to, to me, that's being a paper pusher when I was younger. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be a cop. I'm going to be out there and I'm going to be enforcing the laws. But after all of this happened, it's like, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to help people. I, and, I, and I'm not saying cops don't help people. Cops do. But that's not the avenue or the method I wanted to take. I wanted to help people in their in their die most dire situations in their hospital bed while they're recovering from a gang influence or gang impacted uh, injury. And I, I instill that in in my kids now. You should always look to how you can help the community. 
you should always be grateful for what you have. Right now, there's fires happening in California, and it's a it's a pain to us because we walk out and there's a huge smell of smoke. But I tell them, remember, the only nuisance we have is the smoke. Somebody lost their home today. Somebody lost their car today. Somebody lost their life today. And while while I knew these were all things that I would instill in my kids anyways, it's something that I make a very extra concerted effort to do now. Because, I mean, even telling them and telling my better half, Andrea, telling them this story, I always have to tell them an abbreviated version. Homelessness took us all on very different journeys. Kevin was stationed in Texas, deployed twice, and eventually met his wife, Rachel, and now has two beautiful daughters. After 11 years, Kevin decided to finish up his time in the military, and at the same time, he's finishing up his bachelor's in criminal justice. He says he's still in search of his dream job. Enzo didn't pursue architecture. He got married and now has four beautiful kids and still lives in San Diego. He works at a law office, but draws and sketches whenever he has a chance. Art is still a passion, and finally, after lots of pushing, I helped him create his own art page on Instagram. So go follow him at Enzo Giancarlo underscore. Patrick graduated San Jose State with a bachelor's in criminal justice. He worked as a case manager for youth on probation and in the foster care system, then transitioned to local government and worked on the mayor's gang prevention task force. He recently finished up his master's in public administration and dedicates his time aiding most vulnerable communities. And now he's a whole dad. <laughs> Shout out to his better half, Andrea, his daughter, son, and his newborn baby. We're going to close. Um, I think basically this whole session was cafecito and cheese, which is usually the second segment, but I feel like we already spilled all the cheese meh. But... The closing is basically let's let's close and let's manifest some good for for our community, for our Latino community. And so, yeah, I just want to give each of you a moment, a chance to say something that you want to see in our in our community, something that you want to, again, manifest for for the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. Kevin, do you want to go first? The one to, the one thing that. Um... Someone's been taught to us is always fighting for what you want. You are your own worst enemy. So the only person that can bring it down is you. If you actually have a goal, if you have a dedication, if you have a way to be able to make things happen, you'll make it happen. And that's what mama's always taught us. That's what, hell, that's what got me through 11 and a half years in the military. Uh, that's how when Enzo were able to play at, uh, even if he was a junior college football, but still crying for like the next level football. We had a determination. We had a goal set in us. And by all means, we did everything possible that we wanted to get through it. I've been to two deployments, and I've made it back in both deployments. I have a goal. I have a mindset. I have a way to be able to make things happen. And I'm not going to take no for an answer. Like, I always push forward. The more going to push forward. And now I'm working on my bachelor's in criminal justice, which I never thought I was actually going to go back to school. But now I'm actually, God willing, I'm actually only a year away from me being able to get that bachelor's. Mm. Love it. Enzo, do you want to go next? Since Patrick wants to go last. <laughs> well, to me, and I, I could say love and acceptance and everything. 
And because not only am I doing things for me, but I have four boys that are following after my example. Um, we were brought up not to look at the person with the color. We were brought up to that every single person is have their intellectual skills, intellectual levels. We were brought up to love no matter what. And that's what my main goal is to to not only show what I could do, but follow, have footsteps for my sons to follow. Like Kevin was saying, like, I never thought I'd go back to school. Same here. I thought I was done. After my business uh, business degree, I thought <laughs> I was done. But I know I have more in uh, under my belt for it. And I'm only five, no, six classes away from my bachelor's on graphic design which is something that I really want to really, really want to do and want to pursue. And even though I hear naysays here and there about people telling me, why do you want to go back to get another degree? I'm all, this is me. This is what I want to do. I can't take no for an answer and I can't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stay stuck where I am right now. I know there's better things for me. Like I said, this is my, my example is not only for me, is for my four boys that follows after my my steps. That no matter how many degrees you have, what matters is how you show them. All right, let's get the mic drop ready. So just real quick, I work in government, so I may have a political sounding message, but I, I, I promise it's not. <laughs> the main thing I want for my community <laughs> at- And Patrick approved this message. <laughs> <laughs> this message has been approved by Patrick Cordova. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it <laughs> my community at home and my community at large. So my community at home, what I want to make sure is manifested in their lives is being grateful for what they have, being appreciative for anything, and to work their butt off for what they want. Kind of like what Kevin is saying. Going Going through my bachelor's compared to my master's program, I had two very different experiences. My bachelor's program, I didn't take it seriously. I was going through all these hard times. I was trying to get my bearings on, one, being an adult, two, managing the pain I still had from this experience, and three, focusing on how am I going to pay my way through all of this because I have no financial support besides my financial aid. So that compared to my master's program, where the only the only um, other competing priority besides schooling was my family at home, I was a completely different student. 4.0, honor society, all these different things that I could have done as uh, in my undergrad, but didn't. So I want I want my kids to understand my community at home that if you work your butt off, you will get what you want. But it it comes with a fight. It's not going to be handed to you. It comes with a fight. And if you get knocked down six times, you better get your butt up seven times. So that's from a community at home. And I want to make sure they understand why it's important to get back to the community at large. Because the what I want to see manifested in my community at large is a system that helps you no matter what you look like, no matter what your skin color is, no matter what language you speak predominantly and no matter how much money you have. 
we were, me and Andrea, my better half, we were talking about how somebody can literally pay their way to get a lighter sentence. And those that are disadvantaged and disfranchised are those that can't do that. I mean, pay $2,000 and it'll take two months off of your sentence. If you can't pay that $2,000, you get the two months instead. So it's, it's a system that was built on antiquated beliefs. I hope, I hope antiquated beliefs, but a system uh, as a whole that were built on beliefs that don't really look at that. They don't look at equitably distributing resources, services. It's more of give everyone the, the fair share and also let's reserve the best for this portion. And I, I, I think back to that situation with homelessness and how if we would have had some type of resource or assistance, maybe things would have been different. And all the different programs that are being implemented mm -hmm. by housing departments across this country and how some of them are addressing it, some of them are not, but the large majority of their constituents have no idea about it. And there is something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that system and it needs to be fixed. And especially for the, the Latino, black, brown, uh, indigenous population, it, it needs to be fixed for that. So th that's what I want to see. And that's what I'm honestly driving my life work towards. How can I make sure that my community, which right now happens to be San Jose, and then on a larger scale, California, how can I make sure that my community has the resources it needs to be successful, to live a, a good life, and pretty much in, in, in more of a cyclical manner, then give back to their own community? Because you can't give what you don't have. Mm -hmm. So that's really, that's really my focus for the community at large. And just in case anybody's questioning it, because if I run in the future, yeah. I was born in San Diego, California, so I can run. Just want to make sure I put it out there. <laughs> Patrick Cordova for president. <laughs> 2024. Thank you, guys. Thank you for this conversation, for being open, for, for shedding some tears. I know it's hard because you guys are macho men. <laughs> but no, thank you for being vulnerable and, and opening up about the situation. And I hope that whoever's listening can feel that and can be inspired and, you know, think of things differently and be inspired to, you know, follow, follow in, in, in the footsteps that would bring them happiness and bring them into a better life. Because I know it's difficult in the moment and I know it's sometimes hard, but I encourage anyone who's listening and going through these moments to really find avenues to open up and not, you know, wait years to open up about this kind of a this kind of situation. So thank you. Thank you guys. I love you. I love you, bro. Love you too, mama. <laughs> love you guys. And that's the story of our lives. Telling the abbreviated version. After six months of living in our cars, friends, homes in Washington Park, now known as the McGrove Park, we eventually found the infamous two bedroom, one bathroom cottage. There were eight of us living there and we may have not had our own beds or rooms, but we finally had a roof over our heads, a roof we can call our own. We survived off microwaveable meals and lots of prayer. And we did what we did best, you know, we smiled through it all, laughed when we could, and we hustled to make ends meet. 
But what we never addressed was the pain we all felt, a pain you can probably notice in our conversation. And there's still so much more pain we didn't tap into and memories left on the table, which we're actually planning to address in future private family conversations. Muchísimas gracias for tuning into today's episode and listening to my brothers, Kevin Enzo and Patrick Cordova. I want to take a moment to thank them. I know vulnerability doesn't come easy and shedding tears and being open about really hard adversities isn't easy and, and isn't, you know, simple. So I really thank them for their openness and honesty and being able to share these stories on this platform. I love you guys. Um, my brother Enzo, he is a artist, so please follow him on Instagram at Enzo Giancarlo underscore and DM him for any inquiries. And if you want to learn more about how to get into politics and how to represent communities that are usually marginalized, connect with Patrick, my brother. Um, find him on Twitter at pdova90 and connect with him on Instagram at pdova. Next week, we'll more cafecito and chisme and more hella Latino love.